you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you articles from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 19th of January for the listening week that begins the 21st, 2023. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week I have several articles on the theme of real estate. But before that, let's dive into current events from theroot.com, written by Candace McDuffie, published on the 19th. Wes Moore becoming Maryland's first black governor is black excellence at its finest. The Democrat introduced by Oprah Winfrey before making a touching inaugural speech. On Wednesday, Wes Moore made history as he was sworn in as the first black governor of Maryland. This makes him the third black person to be elected to governor in the history of the United States. The illustrious Oprah Winfrey was present to introduce him before Moore gave a moving inaugural speech. Winfrey also supported him on the campaign trail. She remarked, This might be his first day as an elected official, but Wes Moore has been a public servant for his entire life. Pardon me, that's his entire adult life. Then Moore shared a few words. It's impossible not to think about our past and our path, he stated. We're blocks away from the Annapolis docks, where so many enslaved people arrived in this country against their will, and we are standing in front of a capital that was built by their hands. We have made uneven and unimaginable progress since then. The new governor also talked vital policy topics, including a troubling economy, child poverty, and crime rates. One in eight children live in poverty in the state of Maryland, a statistic more finds unacceptable. We must refuse to accept that, he stated. Instead, I'm asking you to believe that Maryland can be different. When it came to discussing the economy, he remarked that we do not have to choose between a competitive economy and an equitable one. In November, Moore beat out GOP nominee Dan Cox for the governorship. His inauguration was held at what pardon me, at the Maryland State House, which is the country's oldest state capital. In addition to Winfrey being present, other celebrities on hand for the event included Chris Tucker and Chelsea Clinton. And now we're going to shift to the New York Times. Our next several articles come from their online publication. First, Selling Houses While Black. About 6% of real estate agents and brokers in the United States are black. Their white peers make almost three times as much, according to data and surveys. This was written by Colette Coleman, published January 12th. It says updated January 17th. Colette Coleman is a freelance writer focused on race and equity. 
Ty Williams feels the heat. It's 95 degrees out, and the North Carolina sun is beating like a drum. He's in a full suit and tie and thinking about the tasks ahead. When he gets to the home he's showing, will he arouse suspicion because he has trouble opening the lockbox? Will neighbors call the cops when they see him circling the property and peeping in its crawl spaces? Or will his extremely professional and very warm attire protect him? As a black real estate agent, he said, I'm always sure I have my license ready. Black agents say thoughts like these often run through their heads when they are out showing houses to their clients. Despite groundbreakers like Philip A. Payton, Jr., whose Afro-American realty transformed Harlem into an international center of black culture in the early 20th century, a history of racism in the real estate industry has shut black people out and has discouraged them from becoming agents. Though the National Association of Realtors, NAR, permitted black people to join and to access its benefits in 1961 when the organization officially ended the exclusion of black agents, the group still lobbied against the 1968 Fair Housing Act, a law to end housing discrimination. Today, about 6% of real estate agents and brokers in the United States are black, although pardon me, 14% of Americans are black. White real estate agents make almost three times as much as their black peers, according to the NAR. To make it in the industry, black agents say they are taking precautions and making concessions, including changing their names or omitting their photos from promotional materials to hide their racial identities. The discrimination they face can be life-threatening. In August 2021, police officers in Michigan handcuffed and pointed guns at Eric Brown, a black real estate agent, and his black clients as he showed them a home. Lydia Pope, 53, president of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, NAREB, an organization founded in 1947 as an alternative for black agents and brokers excluded from the NAR, recalled how in 2017 she had a listing in a majority white neighborhood. Police cars started surrounding the whole area, said Miss Pope, who lives in Cleveland. When she asked the police what was happening, they told her they had a report of a break-in, she said. I showed them the computer, the information on my phone. I showed them the work order that I had. I showed them my business card, my license, everything. And they ran my plate. Luckily, the situation resolved peacefully, but it was still upsetting enough for Pope to refuse to return to the property. She said, I gave the listing back. In 2018, Chastain J. Miles, 33, a black real estate agent and investor in Dallas, was excited to hold his first open house of a super high-end home, about $3 million. It was a 6,000-square-foot colonial-style home with four bedrooms, five bathrooms, three living areas, and a pool, 
on an oversized corner lot on one of Dallas's highest price-per-square-foot streets. His excitement disappeared abruptly when would-be buyers, an older white couple, walked in and immediately walked out upon seeing him. She opened the door and literally stopped there in the doorframe and said to me, Oh, you're not who we were expecting. And her husband, oh, pardon me, and her and her husband turned around and walked away, he said. They weren't expecting me to be in that house on this street in this zip code. Some black agents said they have come to expect bigotry, especially from older white people. Daryl Dibbs, 33, a black agent in Detroit, pardon me, said many potential clients grew up under segregation and with laws like interracial marriage bans. So I'm not convinced that this 60-year-old white man completely trusts me with selling his home when he lived in a time when I couldn't even buy one, he said. After the experience with the older couple in Dallas, Mr. Miles concluded, I'm not supposed to be here. Mr. Miles didn't host any more open houses at the mansion and considered selling less expensive houses. But then he came up with a new approach. He started buddying up with white agents, hiring them to come to his open houses and work as greeters at the door while he remained a distance away in the kitchen. When a greeter referred potential clients to Miles to get answers to their questions about the home or the buying process, they were often surprised that he was the one in charge. And while these potential buyers were always polite, they seemed unwilling to engage with him as they would have with his white colleague. They asked him simple questions that lacked the depth of those that buyers of multimillion-dollar homes usually ask. In these interactions, Mr. Miles was, quote, left asking, Are you sure that's that, pardon me, are you sure that that's it? You don't want to know anything else? Even before showing up at houses, open houses, with white buddies, Some black agents employ other tactics to hide their racial identity, though it is standard practice for agents to include a headshot on their business cards and marketing materials. Some black agents omit photos to hopefully persuade prospective clients to work with them based on credentials and knowledge. The longtime tradition of the lawn sign can be threatened by racism, When a white couple commissioned Fee Gentry, 54, a black real estate consultant in the Austin area, to list their house for sale, they asked her to display a lawn sign that did not include her photo. Mr. Williams, 36, the well-dressed agent in Raleigh, North Carolina, decided to take a different tactic at initial racial ambiguity to further avoid prejudgment. Ty Williams is actually Tyrone Williams. He has been going by Ty for many years and thought deeply about the impact of using Ty versus Tyrone when he started in real estate in 2020. Having Tyrone on a sign may put me in a position where it is like, oh, that's a Tyrone, he said. Although he's proud of the name, he knows that it's stigmatized, 
Unfortunately, there would be someone that will see this name and go the other way, he said. Parentheses. Studies have shown that employers discriminate against applicants with names closely associated with black people. Do brokerages share the blame? According to a survey from the NAR of its members, the median for white real estate agents' residential sales was $356,000, while the median for those of black agents was $246,000. The median sales volume for white real estate agents was 1,998, while the median sales volume for black agents was 474,500. Discrimination means a smaller pool of potential clientele and smaller commissions from properties at lower price points. Since homes owned by black people are undervalued, Priced 23% lower than homes owned by white people. But an agent's background and their clientele are not the only reasons black agents generally earn less than their white peers, say some agents. They said brokerages are also to blame for the earnings gap. As a new agent, nearly 20 years ago, Ms. Gentry was offered 20% of the 3% commission she was due as a buyer's agent. And in 2016, at Mr. Dibbs's first brokerage, a white woman he befriended, who started at the same time as him, shared that she was getting a significantly better commission split than he was. He left for another brokerage. Black agents also said their listing agents, who are not black, often do not respond to their calls and require their black clients to jump through hoops like. Showing proof of funds or IDs before they can view properties. In 2020, the NAR apologized for its past complicity in racist housing practices and is implementing its ACT initiative to hold bad actors in the industry accountable. But many black agents would like to see more done. And the ACT measures can only go so far if anti black racism remains rampant in society. Pamela Chambers, 53, a black agent in Tucson, who is sure to wear her company badge in unwelcoming neighborhoods, recalled how white agents mocked the lesson in a required fair housing class that she has taken every two years since getting licensed in Arizona in 2017. She said she lost faith in the course's efficacy. Agents are, quote, just taking it because they have to keep their license, said Mrs. Chambers. To avoid classmates' comments doubting that anti black housing discrimination still happens, she now plans to take these classes online. Still, Ms. Chambers loves real estate and believes it's a great career path. You don't need a college degree. Have uncapped earning potential, are poised to get into real estate investing, and get to participate in one of the best days of people's lives. She has encouraged other black people to get into the business and started a mentorship program to increase the diversity of the brokerage where she works, which until recently only had two black agents, Ms. Chambers and her ex husband, out of about 500 agents. Many other agents I spoke to are similarly starting mentoring groups, affinity groups, 
and even buying real estate courses. $67 on Groupon for black friends who encourage to encourage them to get into the business. Mr. Williams makes sure to always post photos of real estate wins to social media so that black people considering getting into the business will see more people who look like them. He's also involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work with his local NAR chapter and tries to make changes on the ground. For example, after many experiences of walking into show homes and turning a corner to have the shock and insult of racially charged posters, flags, and magnets saying things like, if you kneel for the national anthem, you don't deserve to live. He's working to educate his colleagues on how listing agents should handle such situations. If it's okay to tell clients to paint their houses, redo their cabinets, or cut down a tree, why can't agents tell them to remove racist paraphernalia? He asked. The work is very much an extension of the Fair Housing Act, educating white colleagues, white homeowners, and trying to ensure that black people have an equal chance of buying a house. This summer, NAREB will begin a new mentorship program which will support young people looking to get into the sector in an effort to diversify the industry on a large scale. It took Barbara Lowry, 50, of Indianapolis, decades of dreaming about being an agent to make the jump. I only knew what I saw, she said, about her hesitance in her 20s. I was just like, would I fit in, given her image of real estate agents as white men in business suits? I did have kind of a fear, will they accept me? The answer, unfortunately, is often no. At her first showing in the spring of 2021, someone called the police, but she said she's not going anywhere. She said, I come home and I vent, and I keep it moving. This is my real estate game, and if they don't like me, if they dismiss me because of me and who I am as this black woman, shame on you. You're missing out. Our next one from the New York Times' real estate section could black flight change a model of integration? American suburbs have long faced the issue of white families leaving as more residents of color move in, but in Shaker Heights, Ohio, black families upset by changes in the schools are trickling to nearby, pardon me, near, nearby suburbs. And this is written by Deborah Kamen, posted January 13th. It says here, Deborah Kamen, traveled to her hometown of Shaker Heights, Ohio, to report this story, interviewing dozens of black and white residents. Selena Boyer grew up in Shaker Heights, a leafy Cleveland suburb known nationally for its magnificent historic homes, its diverse population, and its high-ranking schools. Since the 1950s, when a group of neighbors banded together to voluntarily integrate Shaker Heights, the community has prided itself on supplanting America's racial politics with its own successful race relations. Black and white children are told they have an equal shot in Shaker, where multiculturalism is so much a core value that the largest club at Shaker Heights High School is a group focusing on positive race relations. 
But when her son was born, six years ago, Miss Boyer, who is black, worried that something was eroding. The gap between black and white students was widening. At least 73% of black 8th graders in the district were reading at or above grade level in 2011. By 2021, that number had dropped precipitously to about 27%, according to Ohio's Department of Education. Shaker Heights was no longer a first choice for many black families, and a creeping exodus of black families to neighboring towns was beginning to take shape. From 2000 to 2020, 20, pardon me, 2020, the black population in Solon, another Cleveland suburb, more than doubled to nearly 12% up from less than 6%. American suburbs have long faced the issue of white flight, where white families pack up in large numbers as demographics shift and more residents of color move in. But in Shaker Heights, it's black families who are leaving. Many of them point to initiatives rolled out over the past decade meant to combat systemic racism in the classroom. Good intentions that they feel have done more harm than good when it comes to their children's academic achievement. Though the dip in Shaker Heights' black population has been slight, the shift is noticeable in the public school system. In 2012, black students made up just over half of students. Now they make up about 45% of the population. In the same time period, the white student population grew slightly from about 37% to nearly 39%. Ms. Boyer, 42, has spent 20 years teaching first grade in the school system. Until recently, her husband worked as a baseball coach. They are both the product of Shaker schools. But four years ago, Ms. Boyer convinced her reluctant husband that it was time to leave They purchased a 2,700-square-foot home in the Solon School District with a sprawling backyard. They are among hundreds of new black residents who have moved to Solon over the past decade. Home values and school rankings exist as two sides of the same real estate coin. About 90% of American children attend public school, and higher school spending produces higher property values. Stronger school rankings, in turn, are often offered as justification for higher property taxes. And Shaker Heights, which is governed by the motto, a community is known by the schools it keeps, has one of the highest tax rates in Ohio. My own parents, white Jews, chose Shaker in the 1980s, hoping its schools would give me and my sister a high-caliber education alongside many different kinds of children. They felt that access to the schools justified the city's property taxes. Some wealthier black families recently told me that they have decided that Shaker Heights is no longer worth the money, threatening to rip the long-time fabric of a model community of integrated neighborhoods and schools. Parentheses. Salon has higher-ranking schools, lower taxes, and a population that is nearly 70% white. In Shaker Heights, white people make up about 55% of the population.
The parents who had the means and who were black, and with black kids who were high-performing, they left Shaker, said Shaban Aaron, 42, who in 2020 switched her 16-year-old son Karim to private school and then moved out of the district to Twinsburg, a community 15 miles south of Shaker Heights, where the property taxes are significantly lower. Despite taking honors classes at Shaker Heights Middle School, where he was often one of only a handful of black students in the room, Kareem was often stereotyped by administrators who presumed that because he was black, he needed extra help, said Ms. Aaron, an assistant professor of nursing at Case Western University. She worried that recent changes would further lower expectations for her son. Dr. David Glasner, the district superintendent, said the goal was quite the opposite. Higher-achieving students would encourage their peers to rise. Dr. Glasner, 44, said, Our goal is to level up, not down. He is white. He goes on, Curriculum and instruction that works for gifted students is usually good for all students. Ms. Boyer said she was struggling to help students who didn't have enough support at home. She was growing frustrated that nearly all the students performing below grade level in her classroom were black. She said, People can say we have all these diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, but it is what it is. Look at the numbers. There are so few black kids doing well. Ms. Boyer still teaches in Shaker Heights. Her husband is now a coach at Salon High School. Their son, six, attends kindergarten at Salon. Their daughter, five, will join him next year. The Gap In dozens of interviews, black and white Shaker, Re- pardon me, Shaker Heights residents said the same thing. Shaker Heights appears integrated, but within its schools, where gifted and honors classes have long skewed overwhelmingly white, it is anything but. Data in the school district's 2020-2021 Strategic Plan Annual Report reveals that 31% of black students did not meet competency requirements for 10th grade language arts, compared with only 1.95% of white students. When it comes to 8th grade algebra competency, 60% of black students did not meet the bar compared with 5.45% of white students. In 2019, a damning Washington Post article laid bare the academic disparities between black and white students in that school district. Dr. Glasner, who previously served as Shaker's interim high school principal and the district's executive director of curriculum, had only been in his job for a few months when the article was published. Not long after, he announced Forward Together, a jointly funded plan with both the City of Shaker Heights and the Shaker Heights Public Library. It included a proposal to relocate several elementary schools, bringing white students from the city's wealthier neighborhoods into classrooms with black students from lower-income households. Many residents protested, fearing it would lower home values and reshape the communities. Dr. Glasner said the plan would most likely be reworked. Then, in the summer of 2020, as racial pardon me, racial reckoning 
rocked the entire country. Dr. Glasner announced that the district would try to eliminate segregated classrooms by ending academic tracking in middle school and transforming the high school's tiered structure for class levels. We have an opportunity to reimagine what education can be in a way that is anti-racist, he said. Part of his motivation, he said, is to keep high-achieving black students in the district. But many black parents felt that poor implementation could lead to lower standards and said the school district disregarded their concerns. Kim Harris, who is black and has three sons, aged 13, 16, and 31, has lived in Shaker Heights for 32 years. She said that the plan was put into place without properly surveying black families. It was assumed that de-leveling would help marginalized families, but I don't trust that Shaker really had a good idea of what black parents wanted, said Miss Harris, who is a library technician at Woodbury, Shaker's district-wide elementary school for 5th and 6th graders. She is the founder of Shaker African American Moms Support, an outreach group for mothers. I have a son who needs to be around serious learners. I needed him to be in that honors course. When she first moved to Shaker Heights, she bought a home in the heavily black Moreland neighborhood with a screened-in porch that she adored, but she wasn't in love with the neighborhood. She now lives in Shaker's Mercer community, where nearly three-quarters of residents are white and where the average household income is $163,000. In Moreland, the average household income is $46,000. For Miss Harris, who's 52, Shaker was about climbing a social, economic, and educational hierarchy when she moved there three decades ago from Warrensville Heights, a neighboring community whose population is more than 90% black. She said, I knew other black people who lived in Shaker, and they were the kind of people I aspired to be. The Good Life Shaker Heights's reputation was built by a rejection of white flight in Cleveland that began as black people moved to northeast Ohio in droves during the Great Migration. In the 1950s, a handful of black and white couples formed the Ludlow Community Association, a group that encouraged black families to move in while also imploring white families to stay. The result was the first successfully integrated community in Cleveland and one of the first in the nation. And for many years it was considered something of a utopia, Cosmopolitan magazine in 1963 ran a feature called The Good Life in Shaker Heights, hailing it as the ideal American town. The New York Times in 1975 described the city as one of the country's most dramatically successful long-term ventures in racially integrated housing in the suburbs. My parents wanted to be part of such a community. I went to Shaker schools from kindergarten through 12th grade and was a group leader in Shaker's student group on race relations. Shaker, to me, always felt singular and exceptional, not just for its winding wooded streets lined with elegant tutors and colonials, but for the mission of equality that quietly informed every aspect of community life. In our desire for diversity, 
I felt we were all like-minded. But not only was Shaker Heights integrated, it was affluent. In 1962, the U.S. Census Bureau declared it the wealthiest community in the country, a bedroom community to Cleveland's scions of car-making and steel. Its prosperity tapered off in the late 1960s, but in 1999, as I was entering my junior year of high school, the median household income was still $63,983, which would amount to $114,336 today. The median household income now sits at 92,463, well above the national average of 69,021, but still a nearly 20% decline from two decades ago. The economic gap between black and white residents is growing too. When adjusted for inflation, the median incomes of a white family was $68,800 higher than that of a black family in 2010 and is now higher by $94,000. Judge Dan Aaron Polster, whose parents were original members of the Ludlow Community Association, said the widening economic gulf among Shaker Heights residents is forcing some residents to do soul-searching about just what sort of diversity they want. Judge Polster, 71, is a federal judge on the Northern District of Ohio, pardon me, of the Northern District of Ohio, and a long, pardon me again, a lifelong resident of Shaker Heights. He is white. There is a much bigger economic divergence than there used to be, and that creates some challenges. People vote with their feet, he said. Dr. Glasner said he is aware that some families, both black and white, are unhappy with the changes he has put into place, but he believes they are in the minority. When I talk to families about why they live here and send their children to school here, they'll often talk about the value they place on diversity, but when push comes to shove, that can be challenging. He said in an interview at his office in Shaker Heights, he went on, Change is hard. That is as true in Shaker Heights as it is anywhere else in this country or even in the world. He points to many longtime Shaker Heights residents, including some of my former classmates, who say they are not going anywhere. Shyla Nims, 39, is one of those, a black special education teacher who grew up in Shaker Heights. She came back after college and saved for years before buying a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath home last year with a den where her children, one and eight, play with trucks and make art. Ms. Nims and I were in the same kindergarten class. The students she works with now, she said, have fewer resources at home than she and I did. These kids don't seem to have the support that we did growing up, and they've been through a lot more trauma, she said. But she's committed to Shaker Heights, not just for herself, but for her children. My parents graduated from Shaker. So did I and my siblings. My daughter will be third generation, and that was super important to me, she said. I still believe in everything that is here. Moving up and trying to make it. Several Shaker Heights brokers told me the housing market remains competitive, 
after all the median home price, $280,000, is up 10% from last year, but other Cleveland neighborhoods have seen a more significant spike in home prices. In Salon, the median home price now is 399000 up more than 15% from last December. Shaker Heights now has more renters, too. Over 65% of Shaker residents owned their homes 10 years ago. By 2020, it was just shy of 61%. As is the case throughout America, the city's lower-income residents are disproportionately black. Like black students in districts across the country, they also receive a disproportionate share of discipline, which ricochets into higher suspensions and lower grades, studies have shown. And as the gap between Shaker Heights' black and white residents has grown, some black residents want to distance themselves. There's a group of African Americans that have achieved and have it together, and then there's the group that's still caught in not having achieved, said Miss Harris. And I come from the mindset, separate yourselves at all costs from the ones who might still be struggling. Parents I interviewed said they are not elitist or classist. They just want the best for their children. If you look at black culture in America, it's all about moving up and trying to make it, said Faisal Khan, 42, a biracial attorney who grew up in Shaker Heights. He moved back to his hometown in 2014, and he and his wife Angela purchased a 100-year-old five-bedroom French Tudor home for $360,000. Their daughter, Amina, nine, is in the third grade at one of Shaker's elementary schools and has had only positive experiences in the school district. But Mr. Khan said that if Amina's experience changes as she gets older, he would consider private school or another district. He said, most of the reports I get about the detracking that's happening in higher grade levels are negative because you're no longer teaching to the top of the class. It's tough if you're around folks that look like you but are not thriving. Mosella Colon, 48, lives in Shaker's Lamond neighborhood, and her son Carlos is 12. She spent nearly a decade as a stay at home mother volunteering as a room parent in Carlos's classrooms, joining the parent-teacher organization and serving as vice president on the board of trustees at the Shaker Youth Center. She loves Shaker Heights, and she believes in its schools, she said, but she's considering a nearby private all-boys academy for high school. She said, I've got to put my money where my mouth is, and my money is my child. He's my currency. And that brings me to the section from the New York Times called Overlooked. I've read from this before in the past for this program. And about this section. These remarkable black men and women never received obituaries in the New York Times. Until now, we're adding their stories to our project about prominent people whose deaths were not reported by the newspaper. I turn to this one because it was mentioned, this person was mentioned in the preceding article. Philip A. Payton, Jr., a real estate magnet who turned Harlem into a black mecca. 
1876 to 1917. This article is written by Adil Hassan. Human hives, honeycombed with little rooms, thick with human beings, is how a white journalist and co-founder of the NAACP, Mary White Ovington, described the filthy tenements that black New Yorkers were relegated to at the turn of the 20th century. As more rural Southerners arrived in the city, the teeming Manhattan slums in which African Americans were living had become the most densely populated streets in the city, nearly 5,000 people per block, according to one count, as landlords rented almost exclusively to white tenants. They filled the housing stock that no one else wanted, including several blocks in Midtown that would soon be demolished to build Penn Station and its train tunnels. At the same time, construction had started on a subway line from Lower Manhattan to 145th Street in Harlem, a neighborhood where an enterprising black businessman named Philip A. Payton, Jr. would send the same slum dwellers saving them from places where they faced discrimination and police brutality. The circumstances were dire, as noted by Jacob Reese, the chronicler of urban poverty. He wrote in 1900 in A Ten Years' War, an account of the battle with the slum in New York, that, quote, perpetual eviction is their destiny. In the years that followed, Peyton steered black New Yorkers to the area the subway opened up. Harlem was white and home to wide boulevards, brownstones, and row houses. It would become the nexus of a community whose cultural output helped shape 20th century America. Little in Peyton's early life pointed toward a career as a real estate mogul. Born in February Born on February 27, 1860, pardon me, 1876, in Westfield, Massachusetts, he dropped out of college and went to work in his father's barbershop, along with his two brothers. They did so over the objections of their mother, a hairdresser, who argued that it would make lazy men of them, as Philip Payton told the author and educator Booker T. Washington for his 1907 book titled The Negro in Business. My father would invariably reply, Never mind, I'm going to teach them the trade. Peyton went on, The knowledge of it won't be a burden to carry, and when they become men, they won't be compelled to follow it, if they have enough sense to do anything else. While Peyton's two brothers graduated from Yale and their sister earned a college degree at what would become Westfield State University, his ambitions took him in 1899 to New York City, where he worked as a barber before getting a job as a janitor in a Manhattan real estate office. Shortly after he married, Peyton opened a midtown real estate office with a partner in the fall of 1900. When the business flopped after a few months, he struck out on his own, sustained by the sewing work of his wife Maggie. The couple moved to Harlem, where there was a high vacancy rate in the many new brownstone buildings, White landlords found an answer to their financial woes in black tenants. With ads that read, Colored tenements wanted. Colored man makes a specialty of managing colored tenements. Peyton positioned himself to guide black tenants from midtown to new homes. My first opportunity came as a result of a dispute between two landlords in West 134th Street. 
he recalled in an interview with the New York Age, a black newspaper. To get even, one of them turned his house over to me to fill with colored tenants. I was successful in renting and managing this house. After a time, I was able to induce other landlords to give me their houses to manage. The landlord believed that having a building filled with black residents would complicate his rival's leasing efforts. As more black citizens arrived, the white ones fled, depressing property values and creating more opportunities. Soon, Peyton became a building owner himself. And by 1904, the year the subway reached Harlem, he incorporated the Afro-American Realty Company to help remake Harlem as a home for black citizens who faced discrimination in housing. He told black investors, Today is the time to buy. If you want to be numbered among those of the race who are doing something toward trying to solve the so-called race problem. The company's brochure stated that race prejudice is a luxury and, like all other luxuries, can be made very expensive in New York City. The very prejudice which has heretofore worked against us can be turned and used to our profit. At its zenith, Afro-American Realty was leasing or mortgaging about two dozen buildings, turning Harlem into a magnet for black families throughout the city and the rural South, and even recent immigrants from the Caribbean. But the company promised to, pardon me, promised 10% profit to its investors and was unable to deliver so much so soon. A few dozen stockholders successfully sued in 1906 and... While Peyton was still able to pay his first dividend the next year, he shut down in 1908. Peyton found success in his third act, the Philip A. Peyton Jr. Company. He closed his biggest deal in July 1917, buying six apartment houses worth more than $1 million, but he died a month later of liver cancer at his summer home in Allenhurst, New Jersey. Even in recent decades, Philip Payton has been remembered as the father of Harlem. Before he arrived, most of its black residents were servants in wealthy white households. His own ambition, along with racism in the housing market and a glut of unsold homes in Harlem, pushed three-quarters of New York City's black population there by the end of his life, including those who would usher in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. He later remembered, All my friends discouraged me. All of them told me how I couldn't make it. They tried to convince me that there was no show for a colored man in such a business in New York. And switching off that real estate topic for now, we're going now to the Washington Post, written by Jen A. Kingsbury, posted January 5th. Black women are worried another hair care brand could abandon them. Miel Organics Rosemary Oil began selling out in stores, they said, after white influencers touted it on TikTok. Renelle Ciela will drive great distances to nourish her coarse, coily hair. Living in New Hampshire, a state with one of the lowest black populations in the country, the 23-year-old law student said she has traveled across towns and even as far as Massachusetts to find the natural hair product, pardon me, hair care products she needs. 
One brand worth the trek, Sheila said, is black-owned Miel Organics. I remember first using their products and thinking to myself, I did not know that the hair that grew out of my head could look this way, she said. There are not many products that work for me. But Chiella and other black women have grown concerned of late about an emerging beauty trend among white influencers promoting one of Miel's most popular products in an industry where supply for natural hair products is already scarce. Black consumers worry Miel could follow other brands that they say deserted them to appeal to white women. Many consumers with texturized hair depend on oils, such as Miel's, to hydrate their curls. The products are not intended for all hair types. For people with straight hair, oils can be too greasy or heavy. Still, hair specialist Taylor Rose touted Miel's Rosemary Mint Scalp and Hair Strengthening Oil last year in a video detailing her weekly routine and other white influencers have since followed. TikTok creator Alex Earle featured the oil in a recent post for her more than 3 million followers as one of her favorite Amazon finds. Earle said in her video, I've only been using this for a little over a month and I've already seen tremendous hair growth. As more influencers shared videos testing out the product, Black social media users reported that it was sold out in some stores or that soaring demand had driven up the price. In a statement shared Tuesday, Miel founder and chief executive Monique Rodriguez addressed customers' concerns and said the company has no plans to reformulate its products. My journey with Miel started from a place of creating the product I was not finding in the marketplace, she wrote. We remain forever committed to developing quality, efficacious products that address the needs states for our customers' hair types. Some black consumers were not reassured. Uja Anya, an associate professor of applied linguistics at Carnegie Mellon University, has seen the same black hair challenges play out since the 1990s. She said, I have been on this perpetual struggle ever since my teens to figure out how I'm going to care for natural hair. Literally no one, or very, very few people, were catering to us. Then, as YouTube and the natural hair revolution erupted in the 2000s, brands like Shea Moisture gained prominence. Women such as Anya learned to make lotions and potions and concoctions, to manage their natural hair, she recounted. But Shea Moisture gave them a hair care product they could use right out of the bottle. But as the brand grew, many black women said the product stopped working for them, accusing Shea Moisture in 2015 of changing the formula for one of its most popular products to suit other hair types. Two years later, a Shea Moisture ad that centered on white women provoked further protests. Parentheses. In a statement at the time, Shea Moisture said that it would pull the ad and that, quote, our intention was not and would never be to disrespect our community. Anya called it a betrayal by a brand that was bolstered by black consumers. Nobody knew who Shea Moisture was until black women in droves were putting it in on blogs, were doing YouTube videos about it, and were making up entire routines 
she said, adding that it was not just in the United States, but also internationally. Now the conversations surrounding Miel have invoked a feeling of déjà vu for some customers. Pardon me, that's consumers. In a recent TikTok of her own, Shiela added her, pardon me, aired her concerns about the social media trend and future of the products. Within hours, Shiela said she had to disable comments on her post when the debate turned sour. She said, I feel like a lot of people view this issue as something that started online as, like, fake outrage. But accessibility to black hair care products has plagued the hair care industry for decades, and so it is something that is a very real issue for a lot of us. Real enough that legislation has been enacted protecting black hair and hairstyles, noted Shiela. In 2019, California became the first state to pass the Crown Act, which expands protections for black hairstyles in the workplace. Since then, more than a dozen states have enacted similar legislation. Sheila said, I think the history of black hair in this country and the hair care industry refutes the claim that it is just hair. Other users on social media have countered that black consumers should be rooting for black-owned businesses to grow and expand, which Sheila said she fully supports. But when consumers buy products not intended for their hair and then complain when they do not work, it can do more harm than good. She suggested, I have seen people talk about it making their hair greasy, and some people were saying that it made their hair fall out and they were experiencing hair loss with it. Anya speculated that the hair oil, like many beauty trends, could be a phase for white women who have so many other options. They don't have to ride with a company as fiercely as we do, because they could literally be with anybody, she said. Everybody is selling to them or trying to sell to them. Her hope is just that brands like Miel will not abandon black consumers in the process again. We carried these companies, she said. We built them, we gave them a base, and we were not enough. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by funding from the Quick Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.